was very young, my uncle sat me down and he said, Marco, Marco, Marco. Hi guys, I'm fantasy author J.H. Fleming. And I am science fiction and fantasy author Philip Dreyer Duncan. And with us, as always, is everyone's heartthrob, the most handsome of beardless dwarves. It's Christopher. Hi, Chris. Hi, Phil. And with us today, for the first time, a non-author guest. We have with us Mark Mills, musician. Mark is Marco of Music The Gathering. Let's play! which we've mentioned a few times because J.H. did two novelizations of their characters. And where are we today, Mark? Right now I'm in Wisconsin, and I'm here for another weekend doing the Bristol Renaissance Fair. We've been here for two weeks, so we have one more week to finish up before we head back home. Very nice. Do you get to go back to New York after that? Yeah, Asia and I will go back to New York. I think Olivia will as well, but... Yeah, we're having a great time. This is the uh, the first time in quite a while that just Asia, myself, and Olivia, the original MTG, is performing. So uh, we've either had four people in the group for a while or some change-ups in who we've been performing with. So it's been a lot of fun to perform this summer here at Bristol. Very cool. We'll have some more questions for you momentarily. But just before that, last week on the show, we talked about Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules for Writing. And we got in a little bit about like beginning stories and what to and not to do. And both JH and I actually got a query about this during the week. And I thought maybe we would just talk about that for a moment, JH, if you fill up to it. Yeah, we can do that. I'll let you go first. Okay, so question we got was basically how to start a story. And the person who asked wanted to know, like, do you start with Once Upon a Time or is a dark and stormy night or start with weather? And I think Phil and I basically gave the same answers, like don't start with any of that. Normally, the best way to start is with some sort of action. And then I gave him examples of ways I started, like the current book I'm writing, how I've started other books. And it can change depending on the book, but really some sort of action that will kind of draw the reader in and then give them some idea of who your character is. And then enough of a hook to keep them turning the pages like, okay, I want to know what happens next with this thing. Yeah, I think the one thing I would clarify on that point, because we said it a few times last week, we used the word action. And I think sometimes people Mm -hmm. immediately think that that means like a fight scene or something. And it doesn't have to be a fight scene. It just means something happening. Right? Right. So if you're a budding author, and you're writing your first story, In your mind, you're like, I need to set the stage. I need to describe who these characters are. I need to, you know, do all this setup. But it's actually none of that's true. You can just start in the middle of them having a conversation. You can start in the middle of them doing something. You can start in the middle of an action scene, although some people don't like that. Either way, the main thing is you start with something happening and then give me a reason to care about the characters very quickly and start introducing them to me. So, for example, when I wrote my first Blade Mage novel, my opening line is, there was a wizard on my property, and then something about, and I only knew that because I am a wizard, right? So I didn't tell you anything about where he was or what's going on, other than, obviously, he's a wizard, and there's a wizard on his property. And then they're just, the character's walking up, and things are moving. When I did the second one, I started with an opening, I don't remember the opening line, but essentially it opens with Wyatt and Axel in trouble, because I would assume most people who are going to the second one probably read the first one. And if they didn't, that's, I guess, on them. But I'm setting up that second one as an opening to kind of reacclimate you to the characters and let you feel who they were again. 
So that's my two cents on that. JH, anything else? No, I just, I agree hundred percent. Yeah. It depends on the book and the characters involved. Yeah. And that can, that can vary, but yeah, some sort of, like you said, it doesn't have to be battle action. It can be anything. Like for example, the one I'm writing right now is actually the second book in a series. And my main character is a witch. And I opened up the first one where she's having a flying lesson and she's currently hurtling toward the ground. So there you go. Yep. You can skip all the boring stuff and just start with the fun stuff happening. Yep. That's that's the trick. <laughs> all right. So if anybody else has questions for us, we love that. So feel free to send us questions. That's amazing. And the other thing I wanted to call out real quick, because I just thought it was a really, really cool thing. One of the senior editors at Locust Magazine is a lovely human being named Arlie Sorg. And on his Twitter today, he said, writers, don't measure your work by rejections. Whether from an agent or a mag editor, I am just one person. No individual speaks for all genre. No single person speaks for all readers. Rejection does not mean you are a bad writer. You got this. Find your readers. I thought that was really cool, really pertinent, and very important for us to remember as authors. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right, let's talk about Mark. Marco, Marco, Marco. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into your your villain origin story. What led you down this path of being a professional musician? Sure. So right now I'm kind of doing a lot of different projects in music. But for a long time, I was doing a lot of projects that were more oriented to theater, some different plays and musicals and things like that, which is where I initially met Olivia and Asia, where we were doing a pirate improv musical (laughs) show that both performed at theaters, but also at a couple Renaissance festivals, which is where I first got to see what Renaissance festivals around the U.S. are and kind of what's happening there and kind of got to see the opportunities to be able to start kind of creating our own thing and doing kind of whatever it is we wanted to do. So I think we kind of did that from 2014 to 2017, working with some other companies and stuff like that until Olivia and Asia and myself decided we wanted to start something just the three of us. And through that, there's kind of a whole bunch of stories for how Music the Gathering was born as kind of a show that could kind of be an homage to all games and things like that, while at the same time having this fun kind of cheeky, you know, card game and gimmick and getting other musicians around the Ren Fair involved in it as well, because that was kind of the vision of it. So taking that into the Ren Fair and kind of using the experience we already had for a couple of years of doing a lot of different fairs, getting to know people and making connections. Uh, We were very lucky, but we were kind of pretty quickly able to break in as a new company and then start just treating it like a small business. And we've been doing that for the last uh, seven years, six, seven years. When you first went to your your first Rin Fair, did you feel drawn to the Rin Fair scene or was it more about like what we're doing could work here or a little bit of both? Yeah, so um, neither. I went into an audition room in New York City, not knowing what I was really auditioning for. And it turned out to be that pirate improv musical. And the gig that they were going out to was the Oregon Renaissance Festival. And I had never been to a fair as an adult. I My parents say they brought us when we were kids, but I don't really remember that. So I was 24. It was a brand new experience. I had never been to one before. And I was just looking for a contract to work. And you know that was one that kind of fit my skills because they were looking for singing and some improv skills and things like that, some sword fighting, but also the, you know, violin was a plus folk instruments were a plus. So it kind of all fit together because we were doing a whole lot of different things altogether in this company. 
So yeah, for me, I kind of went out to this show not knowing what to expect and had a wild and fascinating summer. <laughs> and in the end of it, I walked away really having seen kind of a secret magical place where old vaudevillian performers who learned how to do tricks from pickpockets on the street 70 years ago, you know, meeting Marcel Marceau clown style performers mixed in with all different kinds of vaudevillian American styles that really don't exist anywhere else. So it was really the magic of seeing a rare live event that was becoming a cultural event and a social cultural event in these small towns all around the U.S., that all kind of have their own little flavor because people care about it so much. It became a place where I said, not only is this really a beautiful community, but obviously from the perspective of being a creative, we can do a whole lot of work here. And that mainly being enigmatic performers, we're coming off the stage after shows and we're talking with people. And that's really where we start to connect on why it is they like what we're doing. And also getting to know us is a big part of the draw to come back because they enjoyed their experience in just getting to have a conversation with us, connect with the book, the cards, the CDs, all the rest of it. So, yeah, it's been really great. Obviously, I've got to see you guys play numerous, numerous times. And I always think it's cool that I think you see people roll through and they kind of stop for a moment like, oh, OK, there's a you know band playing here. Let's listen to this for a moment. But then they just kind of stay because you guys are super talented. I think it often is like maybe better than they expect as they're just passing by, you know, and they stop and they're like, whoa, this is this is really this is really damn good. Like they're really impressive and they end up sticking around. And then when the show's over, they all flock over and they want to meet you guys and get pictures and stuff. I I always think that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really amazing place to engage with people. Like you said, it's like stuck out to me what you said before about finding your readers, you know, because I often feel like we're out there doing that in person one at a time, you know, mm-hmm. seeing if someone will stop and listen. And then, you know, it continues all the way down from there to a full person to person engagement. And it's fascinating to see how many of those translate from people at a festival seeing everything they could possibly see. Maybe they're going to stop for a little bit because they're curious about what they're hearing but then they have to move on and that's natural. But so you kind of get to see who filters into being the people who really connect with what you're doing up there as well as, you know, connect with you as people, which is like a beautiful thing because not every entertainment job you get to do that. No, and I think you also have a really cool benefit there that whether it's at different shows or, you know, people coming back to the same show week in and week out, you get to see some of those same people and really connect with them that way as well, right? which is pretty unique, right? So Absolutely. when we, we do conventions, right? And you can go, you know, a convention will be one weekend in one spot once a year, right? And so you might see like a handful of the same fans or you might be walking through there and somebody comes up and they're like, hey, when's your next book coming out, you know? But it's not the same level of like what I see at your guys' shows where you have, you know, somebody stop through and they're super excited to see you even though they saw you last week and they, you know, cheering you on and dancing with cheese and throwing tomatoes at you and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, fun times become tradition and traditions hard to come by sometimes in our modern era, you know, especially in person. So when people find that kind of thing, I think it really becomes an enjoyable experience to be able to go week in, week out and have those moments between 
something beautiful and something silly and ridiculous and connected to, you know, like you said, throwing fake tomatoes at us when we tell bad jokes, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we did get to take part in a uh, tomato storm. I was I was proud to get to be a part of that. (laughs) That was that was truly a beautiful and horrifying (laughs) wave of tomatoes. (laughs) like 20 fake tomatoes somebody brought she she made them she like knitted 20 fake tomatoes mm-hmm. together and then passed them out in the audience and yep gave us a sign to just really incredible we made it rain tomatoes nope. <laughs> we've never been happier <laughs> uh yeah you guys do really well like you're always good on your feet like no matter what happens like the little girls dancing on the stage that was great these two little girls came up and asked uh, asia if they could dance on the stage and she's like yeah sure you know and then they come up and immediately run behind marco like <laughs> racing past his violin on its stand and trying to trip over stuff it was great yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think well, you know the other thing i love about renaissance fairs is usually we're performing three or four shows a day mm-hmm. you know saturdays and sundays sometimes there's a few mondays in there throughout the year so I think Asia and I were counting up recently about how many sets we thought we've done since 2017. Oh, wow. Just an approximation based on sometimes three sets, sometimes four sets and where we've worked. And it's well over 1200, you know, so at a certain point, you know, I remember my brother-in-law years ago saying he watching the show when it first started and seeing it four or five years later and commenting how comfortable we felt on stage and you know, he just really was blown away by the level of comfort and ease we stood up there with, I guess, compared to what he saw when we were coming in, not as prepared and, you know, ultimately just green. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, you know, you stand up there for a couple thousand hours, you know, <laughs> and it becomes comfortable. You you understand what's kind of happening up there and how to flow that energy between different audiences, different regions of the country behave differently. And you kind of get to all know those tiny nuances uh, as you do it more and more. Well, and recently you started a uh, solo show as well, right? I did. Yeah. That's the other beautiful thing, as I was saying kind of before about the Ren Fair having connections to be able to have an idea and create something and develop it and see what can kind of come of it as you develop. So I had had an idea for a long time to do a solo show that was sort of an offshoot of the branding and content behind Music the Gathering. Mm -hmm. And Ultimately, it was difficult to find a time and a location that that would happen. So I sort of just found a show that I knew I had worked at before. I knew the person who did the contracting. And I just asked for a slot like six months before the show is even close to ready. And that gave me just a budget to work with, knowing in six months I'm going to be working at this place. So let me spend X amount on these props, on this set, on this kind of thing, on the sign on just even my time of, you know, calculating how much time I'm spending working on this and developing it, it gives me a kind of at least definitive budget for how much time I should or can be spending on a future project. And that just kind of pushed me as I went along. I continued to develop this project. And yeah, I've gotten now two chances at two different Renaissance fairs to perform it, which has been really awesome to see kind of how I've been able to grow and change things. Did you get all your mushrooms to blow the way you wanted them to? (laughs) <laughs> uh so far it's pretty much all of the props and everything technological is audio uh, i have a few lights but really i got all the audio working so i was happy about that but i'd like to add some leds oh that's right each uh, mushroom had a different sound that's right yeah they're called the uh, the funky fungi of the mushroom orchestra <laughs> they're on a mushroom top 
And uh, and yeah, I can load any sound into them that I have pre-planned before the show. So I'm able to use them to play upright bass, to play a harp. And they also do funny sound effects that I've preloaded throughout the show. So it also kind of gave me another tool to use in addition to doing some live looping and some effects processing hidden away underneath, you know, that I'm controlling with my feet and then kind of puppeting and narrating through a conversation with the props that are lighting up that I'm communicating with as fairies who are essentially singing my music back to me. The approach was taking the opposite effect of trying to be subtle about looping and hiding it, but then not explaining it, but rather hiding it completely so that nothing was seen, but it was explained as to why these echoes or these loops that I'm creating and layering over my music, why are they happening? And they're being sung by these two lights that I'm communicating with as creatures on the stage. So the idea gives it something to watch as well as a couple other characters that I get to communicate with. And then from there, it kind of became this process of figuring out what the lore of all of it was, of what the echo folk, uh, where they come from, what they care about and why I'm with them and kind of why I'm presenting them to the people. And through those questions, as they slowly kind of get clearer and more answered, as I perform it show after show, it was very interesting to see how the audience engaged with that. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun, but always kind of a, will this technological idea work? Okay, yes, it's working. Okay, let me write the script for what I can use this with now. So it kind of is an interesting creative blockade because I wouldn't really allow myself to work on certain parts until I was sure that a USB-C multi-port was going to work on two info channels on my phone you know, <laughs> and those kinds of things such that you know, if I if I was going to end up having the tech fail, then I have this whole script that I can't do anything with. So it was an interesting process of what will work. OK, this works. OK, you know, what can I create? And and then kind of going back and forth. I have a creative idea. Now let me tweak the technology and see if I can make that happen. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But, yeah, the show is called Marco and the Echo Folk, you know, folk being another name for fairies or fae folk. Mm-hmm. Cool. And that's actually touches on why I wanted you as our first non-writer guest, because even though it's a writer-focused podcast, much of what you do in your own songwriting is storytelling. I mean, and a lot of songs are that way in general, but you very specifically are writing songs that are sort of mini fantasy novels, if you will, right? Sure, sure. Do you have a particular drive for that, or does it just fit you know, the music, the gathering and your solo show, or is that, do you feel pulled to, you know, like to the next was a pretty, pretty powerful song. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. I would say that I, in my early twenties, I wrote a lot of music, but I didn't write things like this necessarily. It was a lot on the piano and a lot of kind of more just, again, that sort of imagery based lyric writing. And it really wasn't until we were performing music, the gathering originally with the idea that We had no intention of writing original music, but just creating interesting, cool arrangements of what you're going to typically hear at Renaissance fairs, the Irish traditionals, and then kind of all the work songs that have been used throughout the last several decades in Ren fairs. And so that was kind of our initial set of music. And slowly through it, I kind of said, what could fit in this genre that we're already using these kind of dark tales and folk tales and child ballads, old English tales, things that like we're kind of finding and pulling together, but creating new music for. And it was through that that I started uh, kind of going through my notebook and really everything ends up starting as a single line. You know, the entire Mm -hmm. summation of to the next was one line in a notebook saying a boy travels through time, does this and this, but it ends up that he's this, you know, 
And that was just, this is an idea, right? And so usually those kind of seven word folk tales, if you would, you know, right, um, get started. That's how novels start too. Sure, you know, and uh, and so <laughs> kind of, I think it was interesting you guys both answering the question about starting something. I was thinking about that while you were both talking about that in that a lot of times with a song being so much shorter than any other medium of writing you're going to do, you have two, a couple minutes, you know, to, to get the story out there that a lot of what I'm starting with, especially in a fantasy narration based story is keywords that not only give you an idea for who these people are and what their mm -hmm. first action is going to be, but also very clear language that indicates the vibe and the energy behind what you're about to experience and what you're about to feel. Um, because a lot of what I notice with my audience is when we perform these songs and my a couple original songs we use within this, it's really a gripping emotional roller coaster, right? You know, for example, the first line of my song seeing is at dawn, the church bells rang out once for a mother's final son. So it's a loaded sentence, obviously, you know, with a lot of information and I have a piece of prose that I wrote before the song that I don't share with anybody that just exists that kind of builds in my head what this world looked like in this desperate plague ridden place. And I look to try to find a quick way mm -hmm. to send us into how we can start that action while at the same time giving you a little bit of something kind of fun to chew on lyrically, you know? Yeah, I would say that people could do worse if you are a budding author, you could do worse than to go listen to some of Marco's originals and how he starts his songs and how he condenses a story into that two minutes or whatever, right? Because that is really the same skill set, right? That's what you're trying to do as a novelist to open up your story is you, you want to punch him in the gut right out the gate, punch him in the gut, grab him by the ear and drag him along for the ride, right? <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And a lot of what I've been doing with uh, Mark on the Echo Folk is starting to head into storytelling. You know, uh, I'm doing some live looping where I'm performing my songs. I'm doing some of these originals, but I'm also doing some instrumental underscoring, looping that and then doing fairy tales. So I, I have one original fairy tale that I've written for Mark on the Echo Folk that the Echo Folk are characters in. So it gives them kind of this origin story of not necessarily where they come from, but a time that they were captured and a time they were freed and a whole adventure that occurs in there. And with that story, it's about nine minutes long. So I kind of, based on where I'm slotting in songs and things in my show and throughout the day at the fair, I'll use it or I won't, depending on what's appropriate for the audience. But, you know, kind of the whole thing with going through that has been starting to just really fall in love with and listen to storytellers, traditional storytellers. And I've had run-ins with traditional storytellers throughout my adult life and my childhood that have really inspired me. But it's really coming into doing this myself here that I started going back through names I remembered and then starting really cataloging people telling stories and watching these very tiny, subtle details in the way that they do it that has informed a lot of the way I've been moving forward, both with prose storytelling and song storytelling. Okay, and speaking of songwriting, J.H., do you have questions about hmm? writing songs for Mark while we have him here? Yeah, so Phil and I talked about this a little bit. I think we talked with you about it before as well. So we're curious if 
there's like a like a process that you normally follow like does a story come first does a melody come first um what does that normally look like for you yeah so i'd say they're kind of two separate camps that just continually live as two different activities which is sitting down at either the computer or a notebook and going through either single line story ideas or fleshing out stories and in terms of what the lyrics will be of a song and i kind of just do that without thought to what the melody would be what to what the music would be and just kind of and also sometimes really try to stay loose with rhythm because i don't want to influence myself as to what i think the music should feel like until i've really gotten the essence of what this story is about as well as i kind of go to the other side and a lot of times i'll sit down with a violin a guitar or the piano and just noodle around you know i have ideas in my head but i you know start to kind of just play with chord progressions and i think about modes and kind of the different notes of the scale, the degrees of scales and what sounds interesting. And then kind of that's a separate catalog of kind of vibe based, energetic, interesting, not just full songs, but melodic ideas that can be pieced together to become full songs. And then I kind of pull from like if I notice one matches another, you know, I'll go this theme that I, I really like really fits this thing that I already wrote and I want to see how they can fit. And then I start sitting through how can what what would naturally the rhythm to the to the speech of the melody be and then kind of from there we'll typically put some chords on the guitar underneath it and then typically i write like at least 20 too many chords uh, that go into the song <laughs> and then work with the rest of my band to essentially like start to pare down how complicated the song is because often my chord progressions will change from one section to another and there's 12 sections in the whole song and i recognize that's too many so i cut six of them and I repeat, you know, uh, themes one, two and three, and they become the verse, the chorus and the breakdown, things like that. But also there are a lot of times like I'll have an idea uh, musically and it'll just be a single idea or a riff or a guitar part or something. And it will inspire me. I'll say like, for example, for seeing seeing was not a song for a long time because I had that idea of what the chorus is musically on the guitar. And I heard that melody broken up by the chord and to me it sounded like i always said to everyone it sounds like it's a story about an angel boy and i don't know what that means and <laughs> i always <laughs> joked with my friends that anytime i said that it would just make me think of uh the tenacious d song wonder boy <laughs> and i would sing that in my head and then and then i would stop trying to think of how this song is going to go because it would immediately <laughs> distract me from being able to kind of naturally go into it but at some point i broke through with how that chorus was going to go and then the song stretched itself out and the lyrics just kind of fell into place. So that one's sort of more an example of the song idea for the twist and the characters and how they're going to be introduced and what the conflict will be and how we're going to display that conflict all kind of came from, okay, I've got a chorus, I've got a rhythm to how the song would be sung and I have a vocal melody idea. Now let's go, you know? So it can kind of come from either direction, but yeah, I kind of, in order to just keep the fire stoked, I work on both sides. It's just as kind of a daily activity. So the way you talk about that, do you have a background with music theory? Um, not a formal background. No, I feel like a lot of my music theory I've learned as an adult on YouTube <laughs> and a lot of uh, just kind of interesting things that have been useful as a composing musician with others to know. And, you know, it just kind of has given me different tools to write things in folk music now. But no, my education was really more on the side of 
going through private lessons as a kid in classical music with violin, eventually saxophone. I played bassoon in high school as well. And then I kind of started moving towards wanting to play piano, guitar, sing in a rock band, all that kind of stuff. And so sort of just my solution to new genres of music was always to pick up a new instrument. So by the time I was sort of finishing high school, I played a lot of different things and knew enough about how to create things to be able to make it happen with the different projects I worked on, as well as just kind of leaned on the ability to read sheet music and, you know, having kind of a classical formal training in just sort of that sort of stuff with single noted instrument, melodic instruments and stuff. It kind of brought me into being, you know, the musician that kind of was my foundation for musical theater, which was sort of the shift I went to when I got into college and then, you know, for several years after college. Uh, and really the Ren Faire kind of has brought me back to this funny medium between sort of silly entertainer, thespian and musician. So another question I have on that, uh, you mentioned a little bit was, so when you're writing the music part, so it's being part of, you know, a, a band with two other people, do you start thinking of like parts for say, you know, Olivia and Asia, or do they do that themselves? At what point does that become a thing where it's like, okay, let's bring in these other instruments or even deciding what instruments, because I know you guys all play different ones. Right. Yeah. So usually for the arrangements and the compositions I've done, I have a pretty clear idea as to what instruments I want, just because almost always Asia will be on the drum. And it's really just a matter of auxiliary percussion, accordion or guitar if I'm playing violin for Olivia. And so I've, I usually have a clear idea as to this song would sound best like this. And this is kind of how I want to see it. And then a lot of the ideas for the harmonies are almost all of them are of compositions by Olivia and Asia themselves. You know, they're great harmonists and they really see what the chord that they're being asked to sing over should be, as well as they're great at agreeing on you know, seeing what one of them is doing. Like, I, I sometimes feel like I'm the third in that regard when it comes to vocal harmony, because I'll have the guitar in hand, I'll be playing the chords, so I know what notes there should be, but they usually can just hear what would be interesting mm -hmm. to sing. But usually, like, things like, for example, in seeing, I'm playing an E major chord, but I'm sliding it all over the place, so I'm using kind of a lot of these slid sounds that several of the open strings I'm still playing crunch against those uh, high slid chords. And so with those crunchy notes, I asked them to include those in their harmonies, you know, because I said, that's mm. the way I'm playing this song is on the guitar. The voicing has these extra notes in there, not just the one, three and five of a chord, but these extra notes in there. And can you guys find a line such that you sing that? And so then they just figure that out. Right. You know, and I so I don't give them note for note. I give them the idea of I would want this to kind of sound creepy or what if we all kind of came close together here and sang something you know, that wouldn't be traditional for, a, you know, a major sounding thing, but you want it to sound kind of tense and interesting. And they're very good at interpreting what those ideas should be and then how they can kind of form. And then, you know, every once in a while, I mean, I think every one of us has the kind of reserves the right when they come with a project in to make tweaks and adjustments. I like this note, mm -hmm. but, you know, I think if you sang this, it would be better. And you know, and we listen to each other with that and try things and then all agree when we, you know, hear one version over over another. So a lot of our music, you know, even though it's been the same 30 odd songs for several years, we're always tweaking because when we go into a rehearsal, mm -hmm. we hear these little things and then we just kind of 
we'll pick one thing over another and then move forward as this is now the thing we do for this. And so we always kind of joke it would be fun to release an updated album because we often (laughs) there's probably like 50 tiny minuscule things we've changed in each song, you know, but that's the folk process. And that's the process of gigging a lot is that, you know, you're out there challenging each other and listening to these little details. And, you know, that's the fun thing about having these different rings of fans of people who are really engaging and really listening is those people notice all those things. Mm -hmm. So they're right there Mm -hmm. with us. And that's really fun because we kind of have this mini community of really detail oriented people when it comes to the music, uh, including ourselves, I guess. (laughs) I'd really like to see you guys put together a really high quality live album where you get all your crowd participation and everything just because there's so much magic in that in between parts and, um, you know, some of the little funny things you guys do during songs or whatever. Um, I think you guys would do a crazy good live album. Oh, thank you. Well, we just finally started to have the capability of doing something close to that now. So it could be in the works. We'll see. (laughs) Nice. You were talking about the the different variations of songs. And I was going to say, just as, you know, someone who has been to a bunch of your shows, I've, I've noticed that with some of them and, like some of them are like my absolute favorite like changes. So like when you guys did Savage Daughter again, you added harmonies on that line, um, deep in our bones, the old songs are waking. And that's like one of my favorite parts in any of your songs. I just love the harmonies on that. And it wasn't in the recorded version. So like now I'm like, man, I want, I want, I want this version right. that I can listen to whenever I want. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that was a, an idea that Asia had had and, then, you know, I also it's the you know, it's the lady song. So I really just love being mm-hmm. back there playing the drum and having them narrate that and tell that story and be, you know, the arbiters of the song. But I like to just, you know, it's such a beautiful line. And so I, I only sing that one line and then I get out of the mm-hmm. way immediately again, just like so it kind of just creates a <laughs> harmony of magic, you know, like it's a, as if I didn't do it so that I'm, you know, not a guy singing <laughs> Savage Daughter with uh, with the women that should be singing it. <laughs> yeah. If you're bringing a fourth in, are you changing the song list? Is there a part that isn't getting played when it's just three people or are they just kind of improvising? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. So we sort of never planned on having a fourth because the kind of concept when we went out as a trio was that economically, if we could kind of cover all the parts and create a full sound, then it's going to be a lot easier for us to pull a contract that will pay all of us you know, a living wage and be able to continue on the road. So we never, we always kind of covered those parts, you know, uh, of rhythm and chords and melody instrument and and all that, just as the three of us. And it really wasn't until uh, Arnie Parrott, who is a performer here at the Bristol Renaissance Festival. He works at improv theaters all around Chicago, and he does a couple different Renaissance fairs around the country. He used to work at the Florida Renaissance Fair with a different band, And I guess we had mentioned casually that we would always have love. We would love a bassist one day, you know, and it would be great to play with him. And the season was coming up and he said, you know, I used to come down to the show. I'd love to come down and play bass with you guys if that's something you're still interested in. And so we had kind of not thought of that before, but we reached out to the entertainment director who knew him personally and essentially created another contract for him. So it kind of just basically brought him in so he could collaborate with us that season and Arnie's a fantastic musician, knows music theory super well, and is you know studied a lot of different forms of music. So he came in not only creating these really interesting and cool bass lines that added a lot of rhythmic variation, but also he listened through all of our music and found kind of even crunchier harmonies <laughs> than we were using ourselves before. And especially on a lot of things that 
have kind of uh, medieval intervals to them that don't necessarily have a key or a traditional, you know, modern folk music theory center to them. He found a part anyway because he's great, you know. So it was very cool to, you know, enhance the band from three to four, not just by adding a backbeat musician, but adding kind of what we've always aspired to be, which is we're all sort of multi instrumental vocalists who are also the MCs of our own show, you know, rather than having a frontman like all three of us are the frontmen. And with Arnie, it added a fourth frontman. So that was really cool and fun. And so that's happened for two seasons down at the Florida Renaissance Fair which I may have called Flarf earlier. So I apologize. That's what that means. Uh, <laughs> the Florida Renaissance Festival. And then also after getting to know Aaron, who is Marin the Monk, who's from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Great guy, great drummer and musician all around. Mm-hmm. Got to know him. And since we knew he was in the area and that we had such a great time performing as four people with Arnie, Aaron has similar skill set. And we brought him in after asking the Oklahoma Fair if they'd bring on a fourth person. And we've had a great time at that show for many years. So they were happy to do so. And we were able to bring in Arnie for the first weekend and then Aaron for the other five. So Aaron kind of learned a lot of the parts that Arnie had created and had carved out in the first place. But even so, in the same kind of fashion of being a brilliant musician that Aaron is, he kind of carved his own parts out as well. He made his own little choices that were different from Arnie. And again, those little minute differences and details we got to really enjoy because it's really cool once we're that tuned in to see what choices people make. And it kind of creates a mini collaboration every time we add someone. So, yeah, so that's what kind of we were striving for. And, you know, we kind of never expected. But once we were kind of in that park, uh, we've really had an incredible time with these two fourth people who have added to our original trio. All right, cool. Nice. I do have one more question. So back to the songwriting for a second. So as an author, I typically sit down at the same time every day and I know what I'm working on. So like I'm working on this novel or even if I'm finishing that, I know what the next novel will be. So how does that work for you as a musician and songwriter? So do you always know what you're working on? Do you just have a set time or is it like more of a random inspiration type thing? I think it's pretty random. (laughs) It's I I have less of a regular schedule to creation, I think. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think sometimes I try to focus on as an entertainer and as a traveling musician, sort of what's the most important thing for me to be focusing on. And sometimes I recognize that new creation is not the thing, you know, that development of what we're working on on the stage performance of, you know, a recording of a new album or even just like the cleaning up or checking in on the social media after a performance of a different project. You know, there's kind of these sometimes different phases of the live performance that, you know, I love the creation part, but also like the repetitive performance part is sort of, it becomes an equal aspect to how we can kind of continue to engage with our audiences because ultimately, like I said, those little kind of details we pay attention to become the the crux of what people are hearing as well as what kind of ineffably gives them a good quality performance. Um, and I think that often just kind of becomes my focus. So a lot of the times I'm in a period of time where I'm not creating as much and I'm either doing other things during the week and focusing on performances as they are, and then kind of end up in a different phase where I'm writing a lot of new things or I'm 
slowly adding to each piece and kind of creating something, you know, a little bit more at a time or writing another writing a verse to a song that only has two, but then leaving it alone, you know, so sometimes I really just touch new creative projects as little as possible, right, you know, and really, my goal always is to not continue to push past to where I'm kind of arbitrarily making decisions creatively, because I want the thing to move along, and not, I haven't found its voice, I I suppose, you know, so, so a lot of times, I'm really hesitant to let these projects continue, because I want to just like, open the notebook one day and go, oh, that's, that's what happens next, you know, and so a lot of times (laughs) I and and like I said, because, you know, I find that there is not necessarily a linear return on creating a new song and then presenting it to an audience versus creating an engaging performance that is the same music we've been using and selling the songs on the CD, you know, that we've just performed. So I think, you know, when you kind of look at that element of business, it tempers me from moving forward with a lot of new creative pieces. But the other part I I also notice is when I'm working on a new project, uh, which there are kind of a couple now with the Marco and the Echo Folk solo show, as well as some new work that Asia is working on, I'm kind of starting to collaborate on as well. So totally different genre of music, different style, different arrangement of instruments. So those challenges of this is a new assignment because this is the style of music we're going to try to go for. And this is the style of instruments we're going to use, which is very different from something else, sparks me into a bunch of new things starting to come into fruition. And I have noticed, at least in that regard, that started in the lyrical and narrative side, you know, where I've got, if this is the kind of music we're going to go for, here's a cool story and here are the kind of pieces of it. And I kind of start to chart that and then leave it alone, right? You know, until until I come back to it for for whatever reason, I find what the next piece is going to be. Very nice. Okay, let's do the news. Do the next. And the news. So we talked about how there was bookstore sales were down in April. Apparently they are up by 6% in May compared to May of 2022. So that's really good. Means more books are selling, which is awesome. And just because we're good cop, bad cop, I will turn around and say that according to Publishers Weekly, (gasps) publishing industry sales on the whole remained flat in May. It's fine. They didn't go down or up really. So that's okay. All right, next bit for Amazon KDP. So if you are an author who sells through Amazon's KDP program, you probably know from past years that they'll normally send out a notification when your payment history and tax information is ready. So apparently they've changed that to now be year round. So you can log into your account at any time and go straight to your tax information. So that's pretty cool. And our next news story is that as we're recording this right now, there is a giant spider on the ceiling just waltzing around. <laughs> Let's see if I can get him on as a guest. I'd ask you what kind it is, but we know you're a herpetologist. <laughs> yeah, I'm a snake expert. <laughs> Do you know what's funny is, uh, you know, I've obviously poked fun at JH's mother for calling me about her snake problem. But in between episodes in the last week, I randomly got a call from one of my best friends that they had a snake in their chicken coop. And so I went over there and me and their teenage daughter wrestled a big black snake out of their chicken coop. So I guess I am a herpetologist. Very nice. I mean, I didn't go to school or anything. (laughs) (laughs) But I know how to catch a snake and put it in a Tupperware container and drive it home with me. Which, 
I'm going to be real. Even if you're not afraid of snakes, like when you have one in the trunk of your car in a Tupperware container, or I say Tupperware, like a Rubbermaid container, and the lid doesn't really latch, so you've duct taped the lid on and then put rocks over the top of it, and you're driving along and you hear it fall over in your trunk, that's not a great feeling. I stopped in the middle of the road through the e-lights on and went around to make sure the snake wasn't just cruising around in my trunk. It wasn't. I got it home. Anyways, in less fun news, sad to have to call out that apparently there have been some layoffs at Penguin Random House. Not the greatest news in the world. That's always a bummer. It's an estimated 60 people. Earlier in the year, apparently they were doing some like early retirement buyout type of things. And with those numbers, it's it's around 100 people total who've been impacted. Always a bummer to hear that, especially from one of the big houses like that. So not cool. Yeah, related to that, I actually just saw not even 30 minutes before we started. Apparently there was another one. It's Inkyard Press, but apparently they're connected with HarperCollins. So it was another thing where they just sent out like a mass email laying a bunch of people off. Uh, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. It does happen far too often in publishing. I guess it's just part of the business, but it's always a bummer for people to hear people have been laid off. Well, most people. I know one person who wasn't super bummed. <laughs> I wasn't going to say any names. You're talking about yourself? <laughs> Not me. I didn't get laid off. <laughs> it was me. I escaped beforehand. <laughs> All right. Next news story. So apparently Amazon had their Prime Day recently, and according to a reader article. What do you mean apparently? Are you living under a rock? Well, I don't really pay attention to that stuff, so <laughs> anyway. So you're subprime? Yes, we'll go with that. According to the article, is Amazon's single best day of sales ever, and then also really great day for selling Kindles. Apparently they sold so many that there's going to be a delay on people actually getting them because they sold more than they thought they would. So that's good. More readers. More readers is always good. All right. And then the next story is the Internet Archives are taking some action to stop book piracy. Uh, according to this article from Torrent Freak, the Internet Archives sent a takedown request to GitHub for a tool that strips DRM from ebooks. At least that's how I understood it. The software is called DGORU. I don't know if I'm even saying that right. But basically, a few years back, I guess, Hachette, HarperCollins, John Wiley, and Penguin Random House you know, basically kind of went after the Internet Archives and the court basically agreed with them. And so the Internet Archives now are taking this action to try to stop that. I mean, it makes sense that they would take some sort of action. I think we've talked about the DRM a little bit that stands for Digital Rights Management. And I think David, when he was on with us, actually called out mm -hmm. that there was a way to get around DRM. And well, it turns out, David, you were correct. And this is one of the ways people have been doing it. And apparently they could just get it through GitHub. So that made it super easy for them. So hopefully uh, that does get stopped. And now to our senior AI correspondent. In our continuing coverage of our robot overlords. Previously, we had called out that there was an open letter from authors to all the AI. Uh, my brain just shut off. It's a good thing I wasn't using it. Um, all of the companies that are making the major uh, large language model. Have you tried turning it off and on again? How do you think I got started? I, I, I was moving. <laughs> Hit the reset button. It's very rarely that the Christopher gets broken, but when he does, it's best to start a hard reboot. 
So anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> you gotta cut that, or we're gonna get an explicit tag. <laughs> yeah. I just want to call out that this was the easiest <laughs> update for you to ever have to give. I know. <laughs> I was doing okay up until the we'll get there. Until the reset fine. had to be hard, and then it was a problem. <laughs> to all of the major AI makers, asking them to credit the work that was used to train the language models, to reimburse them, to cite the works, things like that. But they are up to. 8,500 signatures on that letter, according to the article from TechCrunch.com. Yeah, that's, and I would like to think that we said it on the podcast, and that's where, you know, 8,000 of those 8,500 ran out to, to do it because they heard us talk I think about it. We were only responsible for like 3,000. <laughs> it was a pretty decent number when we were looking at it. Yeah, I'll take 3,000. We'll take that made up number two that we're the ones who caused that. All right, well, that's our news. Next. All right, next segment, we're going to talk about tools, and Phil's going to take over because he has a special one he'd like to discuss. That's right. Whoa. Phrasing? <laughs> hey, Phil, where do you put your butt when you go places? I put my butt in a chair, Christopher. What kind of chair, Phil? A very important chair. Do you know what's important for a writer to have is a good chair? And we can talk about our office chairs at some point, but... Today, I want to talk about my travel chair. See, as I've mentioned on the show, I have some issues with my elbows and wrists, some of those cubital, carpal tunnel-y things, so I try to always make sure that I have good form when I'm typing. And sometimes when you're staying in a hotel, well, basically all the time when you're staying in a hotel, the chairs are crap, the desks are crap. Like It's just really hard to find a place to work where you're using good form and, and not causing more damage, right? So I forever was trying to figure out what would make a good travel chair. So JH and Chris already know what I have, so it would be cheating. So I'm going to pick on Mark. Mark, who can you think of that needs a super comfortable chair that they would sit in for hours, but also it needs to be portable so they can take it anywhere with them? Ooh, I think uh, probably somebody who's headed off to a convention and needs to write the whole time while they're there <laughs> well yeah i mean obviously that but i meant like could you think of like a group of people other than writers who need the same thing that i need in a chair oh gamers yeah once i figured out the answer to that question it became very easy uh you said you said gamers mm -hmm. it wasn't gamers because most gamers stay in the same spot in game right okay sure but from like a travel standpoint i was thinking like esports like having to go to competitions, oh, yeah, bringing your own custom that. stuff, you know, but, but no, what were you going to say? No, that's a good one. Hunters. 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 Okay. Hunters need a chair like hunters who sit in a blind. They need a really comfortable chair that they can sit in for hours and hours that is adjustable in height. That was the other piece I missed. It needed to be adjustable in height so that you can always be at the right form, right? Or in their case, sit at the right height in their duck blind or whatever. But then it also has to be portable. And once I finally had that idea, I was like, I bet you they make special chairs for hunters. And I will be damned if they do not. There's a whole line of super comfortable chairs. They're all like kind of tripody, but they'll work anywhere. And most of them, a lot of them, you can adjust the height and things. And they're portable. You can just take them anywhere you want. Amazing. 
don't feel bad, Marco, because I failed that quiz too. Because <laughs> my family's old school, and we were just cushions on a bucket. If you were an adult, <laughs> if you were a kid, you didn't get a cushion. Sit on that rock, boy. <laughs> no, I still got a bucket. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so my writing chair for when we travel, and I take it just about everywhere we go. I spent, and they're not that expensive. I mean, they're expensive, but they're not that bad. Like I think I got mine for around a hundred bucks. And it's pretty durable, pretty comfortable. I can adjust the height to whatever I want. So any kind of wonky desk situation I find myself in, I've got a chair I can take on the road. And highly recommend for anyone who's going to spend a lot of time typing at a computer in hotel rooms or wherever. Awesome. That's smart. Thank you. I'm very clever, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let him being illiterate fool you. next all right so for our creatives on fire segment this week with mark with us i thought it would be really interesting to hear from a traveling minstrel what life is like on the road and working rent fairs and the sort of side gigs and things that he gets into so mark take the floor sure yeah so we've done a bunch of different things over the years but kind of the sort of overall equilibrium of continuing to be out on the road and continuing to stay full time as this being our number one source of income has sort of always been a process of finding a way for a relatively low income to equal a comfortable standard of living based on low budget. And a lot of the ways that can happen, uh, specifically in the Renfair, is Asia and myself are, you know, we currently own a trailer. A lot of times Renaissance festivals have hookups for trailer spots, uh, electric, water, things like that. So essentially, we're able to, you know, to design what our space is and then be able to, for either very, very inexpensive or free, often live with our full home in an environment where we're really not spending very, very much money. And the other key part of it is the rent fair touring is very, very different than any other kind of entertainment touring in that a lot of the times throughout the years will be at a renaissance fair for six weeks to eight weeks so if we string those together we're not so much on tour like a theater show or you know a band that's going from venue to venue and changing venue sure uh, every single night we're more kind of like living as residents in a place and then coming back to that same place year after year so it's sort of made this kind of we're low expense traveling but not expense traveling you know because we're not constantly we're kind of able to create a space of stasis such that we're able to buy groceries, live in a budgetary kind of normal way that people would try to live. And that's kind of been the focus of the way we've lived as we've performed. And then, you know, it's obviously different for everybody. We've been very lucky in that we've come into a place where we've aimed to put a stage show at Renaissance fairs, which is usually a typical way to be able to get a little bit more money in terms of just the stack of where people land at the Renaissance fair cast wandering musicians are usually not uh, compensated as well as somebody who's going to be able to pull a large audience. And as I always say, kind of, you know, when you look at the business of these Renaissance fairs, a big stage show flows the audience from one area of a festival to another that increases foot traffic for vendors that moves people past food that makes people hungry. There's a whole lot of reasons why, you know, the larger stage show that you can do, the more you can typically leverage that and then ask for what you need. And so that's always been able to work out for us. And we've been able to use that money and kind of 
as a business that's based in our home state of New York, always being away from it, essentially all of our expenses are deductible expenses that come off of our business. Sure. So we've run the business in a very bare bones way all this time as a simple partnership. We never did the LLC. We all get individual liability insurance and cover things that way. And it essentially just gave us the ability to create an EIN for the business, which allowed us to open a business bank account together. And then we just have this joint bank account that the three business partners own. And we're able to, you know, contribute to that if we need to, as well as we take owner's pay from that as things go along. And that's been able to, you know, pay our expenses, pay our living expenses. And when we need to bring in either subs or fourth members that we pay as employees, as a as 1099 contracted employees. Nice. And I know, you know, as part of what we've talked about on the show is living well beyond our means and saving, investing and that sort of thing. So I know that you were also at one point you were working full time while traveling and you were able to stop that. But part of that was uh, some of the, like the side gigs you were picking up. Like I remember you went and performed at like Disney World or something and performed with a country band. I did. Yeah, I got a chance to perform uh, three different midweek performances at Epcot throughout 2022. Was it with the yeah. country bear jamboree at any point? <laughs> it was not, unfortunately, but <laughs> the band actually got a chance to perform on the stage where the country bear jamboree, they essentially for a special event, they removed the bears or actually the bears disappear into the floor and they set up that space for a special event late at night. Unfortunately, I was away and I didn't get to do the job, but I was disappointed because I love Magic Kingdom and I wanted to see the underground world and all of that and I missed it. But yeah, they they actually have performed in, uh, in replacement of the Country Bear Jamboree before. But yeah, it's a band called uh, Country Airwaves uh, and uh, yeah, country pop and some different kind of late 90s, 2000 songs that we kind of would cycle through, but a lot of fun. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I was uh, coding for a long time, doing backend development, got onto the road, started developing this show and decided I needed something that would fit into, uh, you know, a remote job that I could, sure. you know, have some upward mobility and all that stuff. And I enjoyed doing that for a long time, but ultimately just decided that based on the amount of time it takes, as well as starting to look at, as I'm sure, you know, as you start becoming more senior, mid to senior level, there's expectation of what you're growth is going to be as a contributor to any business, which is an absolutely sure. reasonable thing for people to want. But as you start looking at what you're looking for, I just saw that not lining up and I didn't want to put several more years of doing the job, but kind of not really actually caring about it mm-hmm. so that I've sort of tricked somebody into thinking that I was going to sort of take over something. And I kind of have just been doing a job to get paid for it. And that was fine, but I ultimately recognized that if I was, if I wasn't going to be honest about what I saw my trajectory being, which was continuing to find as many creative projects, play violin, play music, and then create projects that I can sing in and be a part of in different ways can be the focus, then that would be the better options. So, you know, as great of a job I had in full-time back in development, decided to leave that behind. And yeah, I've, I've picked up some different jobs. But there's also a couple other ways that some, you know, Renfair people start to find upward mobility within the circuit, because obviously there is a limitation to the amount of money you can get from a budget entertainment wise, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's obvious constraints that make sense based on ticket price and the amount of people coming in the door. But a lot of entertainers who are making some money and saving some money often end up investing into Renaissance fairs themselves. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So a lot of entertainers are also vendors. They'll own a booth and they'll manage you know, they'll be the owners and they'll hire managers 
and then essentially are running a simple business or a very complicated business, depending on what it is. Sure. But usually a business that you're able to kind of add an extra thing to your overall pile of what you're being able to pull in. And it's a lot of work for sure to balance all these things. But myself, Asia and our uh, friend Victoria, who is a hammer dulcimer player, the three of us went in together on a music shop at one of the Renaissance festivals we do in Florida. And we haven't expanded beyond that because we're really trying to figure out how to move inventory and to make sure that it's still a viable business if we were to move it around and to try to get it into other festivals. But it is certainly an interesting way of kind of doing two jobs at once in a day is checking in on a booth that you own and seeing how sales are doing while you're an entertainer Mm -hmm. because you're getting paid for the day, but then you're also potentially seeing profits. And the more that you can get that to come in, obviously that can change you know, how everything's going for you budgetarily. So a lot of friends do that. I've had a lot of people who've moved into that world. And then, yeah, there's also the fact that because you're staying in one place a lot of the time for six weeks to two months, you get to know local areas. And as a band, that's always been beneficial to us in that we've started to reach out, you know, uh, over the years, we'll get to know an area and then start to find a place that uh, would be interested on a Wednesday or Thursday night. And especially as we get to know our patrons at a Renaissance Fair, we can start to talk to these entertainment coordinators at venues around different towns close to rent fairs that we can bring patrons because they're excited to see us an extra night of the week. And if it's just for the cost of grabbing a couple drinks, they're happy to come. And that means that we might change the overall attendance of a otherwise, you know, a small business on a Wednesday night and start to carve ourselves a couple extra nights of performance as we travel around. So I've known several bands that have either slightly different bands that they'll perform a slightly different genre, but the same people and they'll book a Thursday night that becomes a staple that, you know, that they're getting paid quite well for. So you can start to add projects like that. And we've done uh, quite a bit of that over the years. And and that's sort of ebbed and flowed and changed based on where we are, or, or if we're in a new place, like right now, this is our first year at the Bristol fair. So we're getting to know the Wisconsin, you know, uh, we're kind of smack between Milwaukee and Chicago. So kind of go in either direction about 45 minutes and you're in either of those cities. So there's a lot in that, you know, we've got a lot of connections to some friends who do things and and we've already gotten a chance to do some fun projects in and around the area. So that's the other way is starting to essentially kind of treat yourselves as local residents wherever you go and then find ways to perform more than just the two days a week. So you know, there's a couple different avenues that we've explored, but yeah, overall we've been very fortunate in that we've kind of been able to roll from one thing to the next and keep this uh, keep this kind of whole thing afloat. Have you had to resort to the gig economy at any point? Uh, not really. No, I've uh, I've been able to sort of because I have my own project and then now kind of projects. It's been really nice to be able to have that as a base. But then as I I've kind of always been in a philosophy of despite having my own project, you know, and obviously I won't necessarily always prioritize a new project over my project that I own. But I will a lot of times if there's nothing going on, say yes when people ask me to play in their bands, you know, so several times I've gotten over the last several years, I wasn't doing anything for a certain chunk of time and a belly dance company asked me to play violin. So I had to learn a whole different genre of music and a whole different set of tunes for them and had a great time doing a couple different contracts with them and jump back in with them when I can. And so that kind of just keeps happening. You know, someone sees you play a certain way and goes, I think, you know, if you could do this with this group, you could definitely do this project. And then it's all a matter of just kind of being a combination of a a violinist that's like there for hire. But I've been very fortunate that I haven't really been in a position where I've started to seek those gigs out to 
as a financial solution. You know, we've we've been able to sort of uh, just kind of pick up the gigs that sound interesting and fun and uh, and allow them to help us grow in our skills and our and our connections, because ultimately musicians are a relatively small, you know, group of people who are trusting of each other. You know, if they can cover each other in different aspects, you start to see that if someone knows that you're reliable and trustworthy and can play the gig, you know, you start ending up getting a lot of different calls and recommendations to to play when someone's unavailable. And, you know, that's kind of how it all starts going. So. So, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying just kind of letting that happen wherever it comes up. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think we've had some of these conversations before, obviously, just not on a podcast. But I always like to think about like our business and how it lines up and how different it is. Even though they're similar in the creative pursuit and creation, everything there are and they have like a lot of parallels. They're also different parallels. Right. So for us, it's like conventions. Right. And it's much the same way as like the more you go and the more people you meet, the more likely you are to get invited to the next one. And then if you perform really well, you're easy to get along with and you have a good presence and whatever, you get invited to more of them, but they're different in a sense that's like purely from a financial standpoint, right? So it's like when you guys go to a Ren fair, you'll get a contract to go, right? So you're going to get paid a certain amount, I'm assuming is how that works, to be there and perform. Right. And then you have your CDs and then the book and the cards and everything else you guys are able to sell, but then also take tips at the same time. So you have a few different streams. So any one stream might not, you know, just be crazy, but one day you might get a large sum of tips or one day you might sell more CDs than another, you know, versus in hours, when you go to a convention, you don't really get paid like maybe a handful of celebrities. Like if you look at like the really big media cons, right? Where you have like actors come in and sit and they form lines and stuff. I think those guys get paid to come in, right? And you might pay your headliner of the convention, like your super big name that you're bringing in. But most people aren't going to get paid. A handful of big names might just even get comped a hotel room, right? So then you're there and it's like, and we talked about this on the show before too, it's like, do you get a table and try to sell books? Well, it's kind of hard when you're just selling that one thing. So one thing that's cool about your guys' business and your art is that people get to see you and they get to witness how good you are in that shorter time frame that they're there with you and they can appreciate and go buy your CD. Or even in the case of the book, they love your guys' performance so much that they'll just run over to the table and be like, well, I love their performance. Let me try the book. And in our case, it's like you have sort of the same thing. I tell this story, I think I've told it on the pod before, so I won't go great detail, but I... I got on stage one time and we were doing this goofy performance and I accidentally launched my shoe off into the crowd and hit this poor lady in the chest and the whole room erupted. And just because of me doing that stupid thing and making all these people laugh, the next morning my book sold out at my publisher's table, right? But outside of those things, it's like people are coming up cold and they're looking at the book. And so you have to like not really be a salesman and just engage with them in such a way that they are like, you know what? I kind of like that person. I think I will take their book home and read it. So it's similar, but a very different dynamic. And in like our industry, you can't really make a living popping from convention to convention to convention, right? Sure. So you really have to, um, you know, sort of build a following where people are buying your stuff and they hit the next release and it comes out or whatever. But no, that's really interesting. And I love that. I think, you know, you mentioned when you gave up the day job, basically, and I wanted to call that out because I know our audience will love hearing that. People who are listening to this are 
very much in the same vein that we are, right? And it's about how can we pursue our creative lives. And I think for me, anytime any of us does it, that's a big win and it makes me very happy. So I was super stoked when you were able to focus on your music full time. Thank you. Mm-hmm. But what I want to know is like, what was your stack for backend development? What was your stack? <laughs> uh, uh, well, I sorry, did, I'm the computer nerd. You know, sure. Yeah. I studied Ruby and stuff like that um, in a boot camp. But yeah, no, I was working in mortgage industry and it was all C sharp stuff. So, was, you oh, know, nice. yeah, because it's all old programming that was kind of 20 years old, but it's all that security stuff. So sort of a niche, very small group of people who are working on this kind of old Microsoft code as well, still because everything else has moved to a browser base and they haven't. And yeah, so I was working on a lot of like these very kind of easy to write, but like customizable that's very much needed with deep within enterprise industry. So technological tools that mortgage loan officers and underwriters can use. So it's interesting in that it's, you know, in learning the details. But yeah, after a while, it was recognizing that really to move to the next level, I needed more education. And that was coming from my mentors, but at the cost of them needing additional time in addition to 40 hours. So that's really where it started recognizing they want to see me do my 40 hours a week and they want to find extra time that I can educate. And I also just started recognizing I'm not interested in educating, you know, and just sort of being (laughs) honest with yourself and going, I recognize it's a lucrative potential path. But if I'm not interested in it, I've given it a solid try. I've been working in it such that it's been making me money. I'm very grateful for that. But it's going to be better for them if I'm more truthful about what I want to do, you know, and certainly it's not a magical financial solution. You know, I sure wish I had that. But, you know, I just kind of seen that based on where my means have been, as well as what options I have to be able to find other ways to pull an income when I need it, that I could leave that behind. But yeah, I found it interesting for sure. Your reasoning that you've given each time you talk about that is pretty good because I'm certain that integrity has served you well in the small community that you work and live in. Sure. Try to kind of, you know, be authentic and just, you know, share what we can with each other because it it is a small community here. Have you found that or rather, did you find when you were having those conversations that your coworkers and uh, leadership kind of maybe didn't believe you like they were sort of, well, that's cool, Mark, that you're pursuing your thing and that you care about it. But listen, you know, shut up with all that. Like we want you to do this. And, you know, yeah, I think it was, it's a very, very small company. It was a, a partnership between kind of three C level people. And oh, okay. so I was working under the CTO and kind of, it was just the two of us. So I think he's a really great guy. And a lot of it was, I met him actually at a Renaissance festival. So, and okay. we kind of started working on some music, the gathering app development before we started working together at his company, but he was, always working very hard to understand what what my life was. And he understood it because he had come to it from the world that I was already in. And I think he was constantly having to battle against two business people that are his partners that did not understand my life. And so I think that was always the challenge was, you know, he was in the middle and he truly was a valiant, you know, guy who really worked hard to try to make sure that they understood, but also in his stresses, that would leak through to me. Like I would hear about the argument they had had. And that wasn't great for me because I was recognizing that even at the, the as stretched as I felt both creatively on the Renaissance Festival side and in, in terms of trying to learn new things and finish understanding all the problems I was having with development, that there was more expected of me. They were seeing they, he was still feeling and seeing a minimum and I was feeling a maximum. Sure. But also 
he's not at that company anymore at this point, I think. And I think that's probably for the best. I think that he's ultimately, you know, a great guy, but he worked really, really hard. And I think we would have needed more people on the team for it to really work out. But they were trying to keep things bare bones. And that doesn't work after some amount of time. You know, I know people want to see those profits as a small, small company grows, but you need to lose those profits to growing the company such that it can right. grow. And that was sometimes an issue. Yeah. I feel that very much. In my former one, my boss was very good and understood my goals and what I was trying to accomplish and, and very much catered to that, right? In my current life, though, and I even through like the interview process, the last time I went through interviews and things, I was very clear about, you know, my main goal in life is to pursue my writing. And I'm working towards this financial independence thing. I'm working towards this retire early thing. And it's very clear about that. And I meet a lot of just disbelief, right? Like, that's really cool. You know, if you're writing books, it shows you're disciplined about something. It shows that, you know, you do public speaking and you know how to run a business and all that. So that's all great. So we want you for that. But it's like, I always kind of meet this, like, we don't really believe that you're going to go do those things. So we're comfortable that we can still groom you to be what we want. And I'm still just like, no, I'm not pursuing the next level. Like, I'm okay with this level. I'm okay with this role you have. I think I can do a lot of good for you. I think I can help you get things the way you want them. I can help you develop people. I can do all these things, but I'm not going to step into your role next. Like, let's be clear about this. And they're always just kind of like, yeah, whatever. No, you, you're going to, we know what you're about. You're the same as everyone else. You're all here to such right. a cute dream, Phil. When you need <laughs> to tell them I write fantasy worlds. I don't live in. <laughs> <laughs> and I will. And JH has ran into the same, right? So, you know, one of her gigs, mm-hmm. They're like, hey, you're great. We want you here twice as much. And she's like, no, I'm cool with what I got. And they're like, no, but we like you and we want you to be here more. And she's like, yeah, no, what I have right now suits my life. This isn't my pursuit. And so what we run into often is people don't understand it. They don't quite believe it, you know? Right. Yeah, I think that a lot of it is the perception of what things are from the perspective of kind of a corporate America. And I think the reality is, is what, you know, creatives don't live in that world, you know, and Mm -hmm. we have a hard time explaining that to people, right? Because, you know, even as you were describing this natural kind of befuddled feeling that people have when they want you to move up in their Mm -hmm. world, it's because it's a very easy thing to expend a lot of creative energy because everyone has it, not just people who are putting out creative content, but spend your creative energy on the thoughts of upward mobility and the thoughts of the structure of that industry and allowing that to be a passionate thing because it feels good. And that is absolutely good for a lot of reasons, for a lot of things that people need and circumstances are their own for everybody. But it is, I've noticed with a lot of my creative friends, it's usually a way that their energy ends up getting sapped from them is in this hey, because you're creative, so you're smart and you're capable and you can think on your feet and you're flexible, you're really good at XYZ job. And it's also hard because in that feeling of thinking about that job from that employer's perspective, they can only see a world where you're running off to Broadway or a bestseller list or a concert with thousands of people because the fantasy about pursuit a lot of the time in this country is this idea that you're ascending 
mm-hmm. when really like I've enjoyed working in this world for so long because I've slowly learned to let go of that structural concept and simply live in the idea that I've become a tradesman and my trade is music and entertainment. And that's simply what I'm going to continue to trade at a regular rate for as much as energy I'm able to put into the world creatively. And that's what I'm doing. So I think a lot of the times it's very difficult to explain that to people because they're still waiting to see a ladder. They're still waiting to see what the rings are to climb so that I'll finally be comfortable. So I'll finally have the mental space and freedom and physical Mm -hmm. energy and all the things to be able to pursue, you know, whatever that dream is. But ultimately, that's kind of distracting. A lot of the time, it's just about continuing to practice on a daily basis, the thing you want to be doing, you know, right. and, and that's why I love rent fairs because, you know, I get to do that eight times in a two day period. And it's simply a matter of not saying, okay, it's year seven. This is performance number a thousand. I hope that one day someone sees me and I'm on, you know, some big stage somewhere and all of my dreams come to a big conclusion on that single night. It's just not reality. <laughs> you know, right. you're just trying to live a life, you know? Right. So, Are you successful? <laughs> no, no, seriously. Yeah. Like, it's a legitimate question. Sure. Because what you're describing is the only way that a lot of laymen and people that aren't close to what you do or in your industry understand success for what you do. Sure. Right. So if you are successful. Yeah. That means that there is a different definition and people just need to understand that it doesn't always look like that. Right. And I think that's the thing is that when I look at least in terms of my industry, the philosophy that I find to be healthy to sit on top of doing this is you've come to a place to sing this music or to perform this thing or to tell this story to these people. Why? You know, and I notice the answer is always different. The, the people of, of Southern Oklahoma have a different reason for hearing a story that means something very important to them than the people of New York City, you know, and to see how that works is become sort of the question. And so to me, I only measure success in terms of have I come in and given people something to think about and something to sing and get stuck in their head and to remember a feeling of lifted emotional state when thinking about our music, thinking about the stories or thinking about even a great conversation they had after the fact over at the merch table where they got to talk about the book and get it signed and have a good positive experience that day. And yeah, I think that we do that quite successfully. And the thing I've had to let go of is the idea of the friends and the family members and those that, you know, will say things like, oh, that's really great, but we really miss you doing, you know, musicals or plays. We'd love to see you in something again. And a lot of the times it's, you know, for a long time I wanted to do those things, but slowly over time I've realized a lot of those opportunities are for the option to be able to present skills that I want to put on stage in front of people and show them to them. And I've gotten to a point where I care less about that anymore. Sure. You know, because there's two sides of that. There's the ego side and then there's the anxious side that's worried about every mistake you've ever made and thinking about whether or not people saw it and you're judging yourself in all these ways. And it's all about you and about what you think of yourself in that moment of performance versus what this eventually has become, which is we're entertainers and we're here to do a job professionally. Like I never try to insult anybody by saying the the term amateur, but a lot of times I'll use it to describe somebody who wouldn't necessarily do an entertainment job based on entertainment or content that they don't personally like themselves, you know, or something that they're not personally passionate. That's the love. That's the amateur part of it. It's the 
I love this and I'm ready to share that passion. But a professional finds the way to use those tools for the person who needs it, even if it's not exactly to my space where it's, I don't want to be the person having the most transformative emotional experience in the room, right? I, I want to be able to be an arbiter of that and then sure. hand that off to people and see what they want from it. And then how I can just be there as people hear and take in the story that I've told them and then bring them into a musical idea that I think is cathartic energetically or emotionally, you know, and in that, you know, it's become this focus. And, you know, and again, like I said before, I feel very fortunate in that with money in money out, we've felt solid, had solid ground beneath us. We have, you know, not had to turn to selling things or finding a way to fill in stop gaps as we travel. So I think it's allowed me to just think about how I can serve the audiences I stand in front of and, and just let it be about that. And then after that, it certainly becomes sometimes difficult to talk to people, like I said, about that sort of philosophical perspective shift. But it's you usually from me get little bits and pieces of it as I try to explain it to family members or people in the context of what it is that I do. But I recognize that some are not going to get it. And that's okay. Yeah, they just don't. Right. And it's okay. Yeah. I mean, you gave a very clear scale. And from my few experiences at your shows, you are nailing every single measure of success you listed. Oh, well, thank you. Appreciate that. You mentioned, you know, when you're talking about working during the week and how it sucked the creativity out of you, right? I didn't plan it this way. I didn't know really that this would happen. But one of my selfish reasons for the podcast is, and obviously we're recording on a Wednesday night, right? That's by design because... Most of my creative energy and I get in this weird funk where I can't write and it's like I lose a part of who I am. Like I don't mm-hmm. feel like myself and it's noticeable whether JH calls it out or like my sister will call it out like you're not being yourself. And so part of doing this on a Wednesday night gives me a battery recharge right in the middle of the week so I can keep myself back into that that sort of space, right? Because I love having these conversations and that's how you feel when you go to a convention, right? So you know, we may go months and months without like seeing other writer friends. We go to a convention and you're all around each other and the energy's high and everybody's amped up. You take it home with you and you're just like, man, I wish you could take that energy and like put it in a rechargeable battery where I could just turn it on every <laughs> once in a while. Right. And so for me, this is the closest thing I've been able to do to that. And that's one of the things I love about doing this is it allows me that chance because I, you know, obviously I'm still working a day job right now. And A lot of times it takes a lot of creativity, managing teams and things and trying to solve problems that I just it's like I lose my being and I need something to reconnect me to it so that I can go right and create things, you know? Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that was very beautifully put, Mark. I think our audience will love that and really connect with it. And, you know, we see the same thing on our side with friends and family who kind of don't understand sometimes, you know, it's like, wouldn't you rather go on a vacation to Mexico. And it's like, no vacation for us is going to New Orleans for the World Fantasy Convention. It's going to Norman, Oklahoma for SoonerCon. It's driving to Dallas for FinCon. Like that is the closest to a happy place we're going to be, right? Because we can go do our thing and be with people who understand what we're about as we understand what they're about, you know? Absolutely. One thing I wanted to talk about, I want to talk about luck because I hear people say all the time, like, there was an element of luck to my success. 
right? Especially you'll hear that like a lot of times with big time authors will be like, yeah, but you know, I did this and this and this, and then ultimately I got lucky. But I think that it's important to reframe what luck sort of means in that regard because of the work that goes into what people do, right? Because I think some people hear that they hear a big time author or something talk about like, yeah, I did all the work, but then ultimately I got lucky and it still takes some out of luck. And that's true, but I think it also can be disheartening in a sense where somebody's like, oh, well, no matter how hard I work, I still am just going to have to get lucky. But I thought about it like this. If I took you to a lake today, we just got in the car right now and drove straight to the lake and I said, catch me a trophy bass. Well, first of all, there's no fishing poles in the car, so your chances of catching the trophy bass are almost non-existent. Not going to happen. But if we take some fishing poles, your chance of catching the trophy bass still isn't great because I'm just taking you to a random spot in the lake. But at least now you have some of the equipment you might need. But if I give you the time to research the lake and fish different spots of the lake and you try different things and different lures and different baits and you go day after day, week after week, month after month, your odds become much greater. And I think that's true in our creative pursuits as well, right? It's not just a pure luck thing. The work we do, the work we put in, our interactions, the relationships we build, the way, the integrity we bring to the game is what gives us the opportunity to get lucky, if you will. Mark, being a great example here, talked about sort of the pathway of his career, right? And getting to know people and some of the side gigs even that have come out of it is because people have trusted him. He brought his integrity. He brings his best to the stage every day. He practices, he performs. You guys can't see him, but he literally has a violin hanging right behind him as we're talking about this, right? So Mark didn't come to it cold. He didn't learn how to play a song or two and then show up and they accepted him. He spent years improving his talent and making a point of doing the best he could at every performance. And that's where he's now had the opportunity that he's able to pursue a living doing what he loves. So I think that's fair, right? Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's not, you know, so much luck as it is being in the place and constantly being in the place and just improving your chances with preparation and with lining up with what it is you want to do. You know, I just knew that I wanted to play and I continue to play and I find people who want to play with me, right? Exactly. I don't know what more you could ask for, right? But I think the important thing is that people know, don't give up, keep perfecting your craft, whether that's writing, whether that's music, whatever. Build strong relationships, be decent, and don't give up. And when the lucky opportunity comes, you'll be ready for it because you'll have put in the work. All right, Mark, where do the people find you? Oh boy, uh, you can find me on social media, Music the Gathering Band, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and yeah, all around the country, different Renaissance festivals, usually on our website, musicthegathering.com, we'll post our new tour of any new festivals that we're doing. But yeah, typically festivals in Florida throughout the winter, Oklahoma in the spring, and now in the Chicago, Wisconsin area in the summers. And we'll see about the falls, so things kind of keep changing and uh, and moving around, but that's kind of the fun of it. We get to kind of continue to see where where we're going to end up. So catch me live as as we kind of keep talking about this AI news. I, I keep sort of chuckling and enjoying the idea of live performance, the idea that you get to come and have a unique experience and 
that that's somehow becoming a novel thing. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's an enjoyable thing. So so come see us live if you can, if you're in the area, and uh, I'd love to get to meet you. JH. Yeah, you can find me at jhfleming.net. I'm on pretty much all the social media. I'm on Fiverr as an editor. And I'm in a lot of music places now, so that's fun. And Christopher? Oh, right. Chris doesn't want to talk to anyone. I'm Philip Dreyer Duncan. You can find me at philipdreyerduncan.com and places where books are. And Mark, thank you very, very much. Been looking forward to this conversation, and we're going to have to do it again. Thank you. Plus, we're going to have to get your bandmates on here. So That would be fun. It'll be chaos, but it'll be fun. <laughs> we'll get them each on one at a time. We'll get each of you on one at a time and then do a special one where we bring all three of you on. I love that. <laughs> I actually have an idea for a little game show thing I want to do. Maybe you guys could be the three contestants. Ooh. <laughs> Tell Asia that she has to come on, and but we'll give her, her and JH can do a full 10 minutes just on Zelda. There you go. Sounds good. <laughs> yes. Has she gotten this started yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's she's taking her time. I just finished awesome. yesterday. So. I just started yesterday. <laughs> oh, you finished it? Uh, yeah, I did. I just I just well, I still have oh. 20 shrines to do, but I uh, I completed the game yesterday. So okay. I usually go in hard oh for about gosh. five weeks straight and then and then I'll take a break for several months and then I'll go finish my side adventures and side quests. But I'm at 90 percent <laughs> completion about, you know. Yeah, I'm not you're Love done it. yet <laughs> excellent well yeah but it was a fantastic time talking with you guys i love the show love hearing what you guys are doing and i love being a part of it so thank you thank you awesome well we are super glad to have you and we will have you on again for sure awesome and uh let's play episode not containing the dulcet tones of a ukulele were performed by Music the Gathering and used with permission.